welcome back everybody to I Only Date Monsters, the show where queer theory meets queer thirst. I'm Monster Fucker of the Year, Lunastopheles. And I'm Unkillable Monster Fucker, Hayden. You're, you're also taking to switching it up, huh? Uh, you know, I want to switch it up a little bit less. Also, it's the end of the year, so you know, like, someone has to be Monster Fucker of the Year, and it's me. That's, that's true, I can't think of a better, a more deserving candidate. I'm, I'm sure there was a fierce battle for it. There was. <laughs> Tusks flew everywhere. Uh, but, you know, if anything, Monster Fucker of the Year is a, is a very logical step up from Noted Monster Fucker. I mean, I feel like it's a, like, very quick jump. I think you took the, the elevator instead of the stairs, but... Oh, there's nothing wrong with elevators. What about Upsy, your lifting friend? Oh, God. <laughs> Anyway, hello everybody. It's been a couple weeks. Uh, as I said on Twitter and Mastodon, my computer kind of folded in on itself like a like a black hole. Mm-hmm. It is being fixed, and right now my roommate has very graciously lent me his extra laptop with a. Uh, it has an Ethernet port on it. My my actual laptop doesn't, so better connections for recording. Very important. <laughs> Extremely important. So yeah, it's been a couple weeks, but we're back like the dinosaurs. The the dinosaurs are back. They walk amongst us. Oh, fuck. That's, I, I'm gonna have to put an alarm in every time I make a reference that's just over your head. Yeah, that's, I don't know, that small added sound effect would probably add 20 minutes to this podcast. <laughs> sure, I would only use it in certain situations. We're Back was an animated movie in the 90s where dinosaurs came back and one of them was voiced by John Goodman. I think I do remember this, actually. Yeah, it's a, it's a forgettable film. I, I think I was maybe too young to really, like... I've, I've actively blocked out most of my memories before age of 14 anyways, so... You know what? But that does sound familiar. That's, that's self-care. <laughs> Anyway, hey Hayden, how have you been? Got me right as I was taking a drink. I have been good. Uh, the reason we didn't record on our usual date, which was before your computer blowing up last time. Yeah. So we technically could have gotten this one out at least a week earlier. <laughs> wow, you're dragging me here already in my own fucking home? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying it's partially my fault because I'm, we, we did not your fault. We didn't record because my boyfriend was visiting, which was nice. It's always fun when we get to see each other. Uh, We went on a sort of a double date, queer double date with some friends of ours to an escape room, which really was just great. (laughs) Uh, We actually beat the escape room with like seven minutes left walked out of the building, down the street, were like, that's really fun. Let's go back and see if they'll let us do another. Sadly, they did not. It's appointment only, but... (laughs) Had you never done an escape room before? No, I do them a lot. Uh, I mean, not a lot, a lot, but I've done two or three in downtown Boston here. I've done one in Salem, which, frankly, was not that great. And then I'd done one at this place before. 
But this room was, I think, much better than that, that first one I did, which was still good. I don't know. I really enjoy those. There's something about those that's very, like, 80s point-and-click adventure game. Oh, yeah. They are effectively a point-and-click game in real life. I've done one, and it was fun. The problem was, the one I did, it was in Las Vegas, and it was during a puzzle hunt, because I have a friend that writes puzzle hunts, because of Mm -hmm. course I do. Of course. (laughs) Uh, We went to an escape room that was horror-themed, which is fine. I'm good with that. But one of the parts of it was, like, there's an actor in the room, and at one point there was touching involved. Like, oh, yeah. It wasn't anything bad. It was just, like, you had to put on, like, a hat and a coat from the closet, and they would, like, be like, oh, what is, oh, the, whatever, the owner of the house or whatever. And I was just, like, I'm not, they primed you beforehand with, like, there is an actor, and you will be touched. And I'm, like, ooh, I didn't know about this beforehand. I'm not terribly bad <laughs> with touch, but I'm pretty bad with touch with people I don't know. Yeah, I'm not great with touch sometimes even with people i know mm-hmm. um and like if i'm prepped and primed for it i can be mentally prepared not this year but a previous year uh my boyfriend and i went to the prison in uh philadelphia that puts on this it's supposedly the most haunted prison in the united states and it puts on this huge haunted house every year where you go through like the four different wards of the prison and each of them is themed Mm -hmm. and it is massive and very impressive but up front they're like okay there are actors sometimes they will touch you sometimes they will physically take you down secret passageways and separate you from the party but if you're not into that here's a little uh a glow stick necklace you wear this no one will touch you Right, I so like that. <laughs> that's perfect, because you know what? Having consensual, scary situation is fun. Uh, and being able to opt into what level of scare you want is also good. If, if yeah. you want to get scared, but you don't want to have people get in your space, I think you can still do that in a haunted house. Well, Clearly. if you want to do a, uh, an escape room that has no touch... Uh, we should do that sometime. I would, I would love that. I like. I also wouldn't have been bothered by that if I had known beforehand. Like, if I had known yeah. more than a second beforehand, basically. Like, I'm already in the like waiting room, or the like the briefing chamber before going into the the escape room. It's like there is an actor, and there will be touching. I'm like, mm, could you not have said that beforehand? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was the same thing I had with the the prison haunted house was if I had known like before we had taken the two hour drive to Philadelphia to do this thing that there was touching, I would have been fine to go. But mm-hmm. as it was, I grabbed one of those glow stick necklace things because I wasn't it... mentally prepared. <laughs> exactly. It is kind of funny how that makes all the difference. Basically it changes the dynamic of the situation, of course, but in that you suddenly have to recalibrate your expectations. And I know that I like getting shocked. I like, you know, being surprised by things. I just don't like my like bodily autonomy being surprised. (laughs) Yeah. But again, if I know that that is part of it, great. I'm all in it. 
I still want to go see Sleep No More for basically the same reasons. Uh, no. Put put in another sound effect. <laughs> no, no, this is okay. This is this is slightly like inside baseball when it comes to theater. Yeah. Uh, Sleep No More is a mostly dialogueless retelling of Hamlet. To sleep. Huh. No more. Set in, well, the one in New York is in an old apartment building. When it was near Boston for a while, it was like an old school building. And so every room in this building is very meticulously decorated. And over the right. course of three hours while you were there, the actors will do the one-hour show three times. And during, that, during these three hours, you are encouraged to just kind of do whatever you want as far as exploring the space. You can follow one actor the entire time if you want to. You can sit in one room the entire time if you want to. You can stay in the main area with the bar and just, like, hang out with people. It's kind of up to you to make your own decision as to how you interact. And there are times where you might run across an actor in a certain room and they will engage with you, though it's wordless sometimes, most of the time. It's a really neat theatrical experience. That's really cool. I really like that idea. Yeah. The people who produced that went on to produce a really great musical a couple years ago called Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Uh, a show that should have won the Tony for Best Musical, but it didn't. <laughs> because it was a bit too avant-garde for Broadway. It was on Broadway. It just, like, it's expressly a strange musical. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. all of the, it's almost entirely sung, all of the words are pulled directly from the novel War and Peace, and the story is based on 70 pages of that novel. <laughs> well, how are you? How am I? I'm actually, I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. It's, like, not a bad thing. Uh, let's see. You did hit, like, four emotional tenors in that one sentence. I did. I am doing okay. Big highlights yesterday, we hosted a Friendsgiving. Um, nice. That was just gigantic, not gigantic, but it was it was pretty big. We had a lot of people over. Um, it went well. Uh, and then the bigger thing is, earlier this week, I went to a concert. Uh, this was a concert that we had had tickets for for a while. Uh, so we went and saw the musician FKA Twigs. FKA Twigs is... In the broadest sense, R and B, but like, that's that's really selling her short. Okay, because her her influences come from everywhere, from like, uh, opera to Radiohead to like, just a little bit of everything. There's so much going on in her music. It's FK Twigs, as a singer, has a very fragile voice. It's very soft, and there's power behind it, but it's still very soft. Like, it feels like if you threw something at her voice, it would break. <laughs> but then, like, she basically just does these intense dance sequences while singing. And this includes things like doing really elegant pole dancing routines. And when I, I mean, like, girl climbs the pole and then like <laughs> stand like 
holds herself with all of her core strength at the top of it and just like does these incredible spins. It's gorgeous to watch. Her music just goes so well with everything she does. Uh, and her new album came out like just like a week or two before, and it's also stupendous. Uh, so, you know, mostly been thinking about FKA Twigs. <laughs> uh, and beyond that, my roommate and I have been slowly working through playing every level and every world in Super oh, no. Mario Brothers 3. <laughs> and we're in World 8. We beat World 7, a world that I don't think anyone ever plays. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember which one 3 is. So, uh, Super Mario Brothers 3 is the one, it has eight worlds, and it's the first one that uses, like, the overworld map kind of style for Mario. So, you can see the levels, you can see the stages in each level, and you can, like, move around and choose one. It's the first okay. one that lets you, like, carry items as well. I, I'm pretty sure I know which one this is, and I'm pretty sure it's the one that I thought it was. But. Yeah, it has the eight Koopa Kids, or the seven Koopa Kids. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yep. I got that one. Yeah, it's that one. And, like, I have, at many points in my life, played the first four levels pretty regularly. <laughs> but after that, it sort of becomes unknown territory. So right I've, now, I've gotten up to, I think, like, late through the sixth level. Ah, <laughs> uh, the ice level. Also yeah. known as, this is what anxiety feels like. I hate it. I wouldn't have done it, but you know, when you have brothers, there is competition, so. I have heard that. <laughs> but that's basically it. Like, there's not too much to report right now, but it's been good. It's been a good couple of weeks, I guess. All right. Well, I guess on the topic of levels no one has ever seen and mm. not wanting to be touched aggressively okay let's talk about alien yeah let's let's do that that was a good transition <laughs> thank you you're, you're, they're just getting better i i do my best um so i actually wanted to start this off with a a question to you sure which which i think has multiple different answers um some more obvious than others. Who do you think is the monster of this this movie? Oh, the fucking corporation. Yeah, right? Like I mean, so here is Yeah, so I here's the thing about Ridley Scott and the Alien franchise. It started out as a very anti-capitalist, anti-corporate horror movie. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere, Ridley Scott decided he really wanted to fucking try to make it about, like, the birth of humanity. <laughs> but the xenomorph is still there. And so, I don't know if you've ever seen Prometheus. I have. I saw it on a plane, but I didn't have earbuds, so I only had subtitles. That's, weirdly, about a perfect way to experience it. <laughs> uh <laughs> It's it's just a movie that suffers from its own portent. Mm -hmm. While Alien is a scrappy fucking movie. So yeah, the real monster here are corpse. And specifically whatever corporation the Nostromo is under. 
Later, we get to know a corporation called Wayland in like future movies. So I'm going to assume it's Wayland, but we don't know. I do believe that because I've seen I've seen enough of Wayland Yutani from like we'll get into this. I was briefly in an alien fan film. We'll get into this, he says. Uh, I think I was primed to be looking for that, and I th- believe I did spot a logo at one point, but it's definitely not highlighted. What is highlighted is both Ash and Mother. Also, naming the computer Mother is just like a very good nod to horror in general. Because it feels like a it feels like a nod to Psycho. It has. I don't I don't know Psycho well enough to comment on that, but it has like sort of an unsettling effect in that it it makes all of the characters sort of infantilized. Yes. I don't know if that's how you pronounce that word. Infantilized. But yes, it does. Uh, also, record scratch. You're not that familiar with Psycho. <laughs> it's fine. It's just like no, 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 no. Here's the thing. It is fine if you have not seen Psycho. I am not, like, there is so much stuff to see. You do know one of the things in Psycho is that, like, Norman Bates has a thing about his mother. Oh, Psycho is the Norman Bates thing. Yes. yes I do. I know that fact about Norman Bates. I didn't immediately connect Psycho to being the Norman Bates movie. Yes. <laughs> it very much is. So that is why I said the computer being called Mother also feels like a very pointed reference to Psycho. Yeah. Which is funny, because, you know, we find out that Ash is a turncoat and not working with everyone else. So, to me, Ash is actually one of the most interesting characters in this in this film. Mm-hmm. Because he is, as we find out uh, much later on, he is a robot, and he is... Full of oatmeal. (laughs) Just chock full of milk. I mean, look, that's a thing. It became canonized later that every synth has white blood. Yes. And I think in this, it was just like, we need some choice that's not red. And it was just what they had. And the joke (laughs) of every synth being full of oatmeal kind of became true. So the white blood thing is actually something I've seen other movies like in other franchises do, which is an interesting... I think it's interesting that I don't know if Alien is the first instance of that, and I don't know if it's always a nod to Alien, but it is sort of interesting to me how consistent that has been that I've seen. I I don't think that there were many depictions of synthetic creatures on, on screen before the 70s in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course you have, like, your schlocky horror films from the 50s and 60s, but yes. they were either in black and white or everyone, or there wasn't any blood. Right. Those were all meant to be screened in as many places as possible, and while a lot of them were still, like, seen as subversive, they were very clean. <laughs> like, Hammer films don't have a ton of gore. <laughs> uh, so, right. So here's the thing. I, have a, I actually have a question for you about Ash. Oh, hit me with it. Why do you think no one else questioned Ash's intentions or motivations aside from Ripley? I think... 
I think it comes back to the corporation. Because Ash is... They, they lay out fairly early on that there's this guy who's in charge of the, the miners, as I believe all of the characters, or most of the characters are. No, I don't think they're miners. I think they are like basically inter interstellar tow towers. Yeah, I guess they're not. They are. They run a cargo ship, and whatever that cargo ship is doing, uh, is cargo shipping stuff. Like, right, right. Effectively, whoever this crew is, are all working class people. Yes, and I think that's really important for for the movie as a whole. So, anyway, continue. Yeah, that is notable. I think. Because they lay out early on that there is someone in charge of sort of the civilians, and then Ash is the science guy. And as the science guy, he has sort of his own unique authority that's separate and overriding in matters of quote-unquote science. And so I think throughout this film, we see we see them like haggling about contracts, and we see them towing the line to mother and towing the line to the corporation. And I think because Ash is sort of by the corporation's rules, a little bit outside of their system, they're forced to acknowledge that he can sort of do what he wants up to a point. Interesting. And once he's crossed the line where that's no longer a viable defense, it's sort of too late. So actually, I wrote down a quote from the film that is from Ash. It's very early. It's when they are, uh, it's when we have an away team at the other ship. Mm-hmm. The the big fucking HR Giger ship, <laughs> which yes. we will get into. Uh, and uh, Ripley decodes, or Ripley sees that Mother has decoded part of the signal and She's like, hey, I think it's like a warning or whatever to Ash. Yeah. Which also the timing of that is suspect. Oh, yeah. Because Mother can also lie to them. Absolutely. So Ripley is like, I'm going to go and tell them. And Ash's response is, by the time it takes to get there, they'll know if it's a warning or not, right? And I know from the beginning of the film that Ash is uh, an antagonist because I've seen the film before. But if you had not seen the film before, that's just such a good start to, like, driving the wedge between people. This very this very simple line that I don't want to say is throwaway, but on the surface, it kind of is a logical response of, like, by the time you get there, what will it help? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> it does. And that's I love the writing of Ash, because Ash continually will say things that on the surface seem totally logical but if you think about it in the context for more than one second even like as a character if one of the other characters thought about it for more than a couple seconds in context they would have a thousand questions and Ripley is the only one who really sees this and it's mostly because I think I think the real wedge between them of course is when Ash disobeys her direct order to not open the door yes which, like, hey, Ripley was right. <laughs> Ripley was right, but also... So the scene where Ripley is ordering Ash not to open the door is when they come back after one of the scientists... Or one of the, one of the people has gotten face-huggered. Yeah, after John Hurt's been hurt. And... <laughs> after Hurt's hurt, 
<laughs> yes. Uh, we get the scene where Ripley is like, no, the rules are, the corporate law is that they stay quarantined. And Ash sort of dithers for a second. And he waits until the tension is risen, and then he lets them in and breaks quarantine. Now, we can, we can actually probably have a substantive discussion about whether or not Ripley was morally right here. Sure. But in terms of, like, pure pragmatism, the movie comes down on her side. Quarantine should not have been broken. Pure pragmatism and also, like, it, the movie makes sure to let people know that, hey, when other people are off the ship, Ripley's in charge. Yes, they do establish that very firmly. And, yeah, we could have a, a, an amazingly robust discussion on the morals and ethics of that scene just from all angles of, like, should we let them in, should we not let them in, yada, yada, yada. But just... In the purest sense of on a ship like that, there has to be protocol. It was broken and thusly, I mean, that's where, that's where the fractured trust starts because Ash, for the first time, wasn't subtle. Yes. And I think that's, again, Ash is such a, Ash is a fascinating character. In that scene, he really successfully manages to drive a direct wedge between like, two different factions of the crew. Yes. And completely absolve himself of that responsibility. <laughs> oh, yeah. He is so good at just, like, navigating around everyone's concerns for the longest time in the film. And by the time we actually... The only way we figure it out is Ripley just fucking going into Mother, because Mother is also a room, and just forcing her way into getting the answers, which, like, fuck yeah. Yeah. At, <laughs> at this point, that's... She needs that. <laughs> they all need that. <laughs> Ash is also... Uh, I wish I had looked up this actor's name. I don't know if you have it handy. I can find it. Continue talking. Um, but yeah, he is so well acted in this role because there is something a little bit uncanny valley about the way he delivers his performance. And it's not robotic. It was Ian Holm, by the way. Ian Holm. Ian Holm does a great job in this role. Well, because he, he is tasked with playing a robot that no one is allowed to know is a robot for two-thirds of the film. Yes. And it's not the sort of Cylon way of like, oh, they have some secret special thing that's controlling them. Nah. He's just like a robot program to listen to Mother. The end. Yeah. <laughs> and therein lies all of the problems with Corpse. <laughs> but he's, he's very deferential, but he's also, like, for the first time I viewed this film, he didn't jump out to me too much because his actions are that of a character who happens to be very socially awkward. Mm-hmm. But on the rewatch, you can see part of that is, in fact, his inhuman nature. And also, I think we, we should talk briefly. This, this whole point won't be on Ash, I swear. Uh, it could be almost, but... We should talk about how he 
is in love with the xenomorph. He is in love with the alien. <laughs> I mean, yes. Uh, at least in certain ways. So the big reveal in the film is that the ship was redirected on its way home to this planet where the xenomorph is with the express purpose of picking up a specimen and bringing it back. And the crew is expendable. That's like the big fucking flashing phrase that basically underlines the theme of this movie. And I wrote this, yes. <laughs> I wrote this in bold italics in my notes, <laughs> working class people being forced to do things outside of their pay grade, regardless of danger, the movie. Yes. <laughs> Cause like it is, it is a, this is, well, it's a film set in space on a planet that no one knows. The movie is about labor workers being worked to death, effectively. Quite literally. I mean, yeah, quite literally in this, but like there is an easy there is an easy uh, line to be drawn between this and miners from the you know the nineteenth and twentieth centuries mm-hmm. uh, to oil workers or just basically name a big hard laborious job that people who are often considered quote unquote unskilled go do that's what this film is talking about <laughs> yeah you know it's not a cave in it's an alien but eh, what's the difference when everyone dies <laughs> but yes a- ash it's it is interesting because ash it's not that he's like romantically in love with the xenomorph, but there's this like almost romantic fascination with a perfect creature, quote unquote. Yeah, I, I have his line written down here. Uh, he describes the alien as a survivor not clouded by any delusions of morality. Doesn't he also say or conscience? Or conscience, yes. I, my my notes are handwritten, and I'm not a fast writer, so I sometimes. Oh no, <laughs> that's fine. It wasn't that wasn't me like correcting you. It was more like, uh, I think he says both words, and I think both of those words are very important. Yes, because, I mean, I can only assume that the robots of Wayland Corporation are programmed to not have a lot of connection to emotions, <laughs> and so the idea too that like this robot, this synthetic life form i would i don't want to just call him a robot because he's, he's way more than that on purpose yes that's... uh this synthetic life form having this like attachment that may or may not have been coded into him we we there is an argument that the fascination with the xenomorph over time is ash actually developing that fascination and obsession versus merely being programmed to care about it it does seem that at the point that we learn he is a synth, that he has surpassed or altered his his programmed goal. Mm-hmm. There, oh, yeah. There seems to be something driving him that is not just the directions from Mother or from the corporation, but a personal obsession of his, and it causes him to act in ways that are I think I think at the point that he snaps and he starts attacking people he is in a way imitating the xenomorph more than working absolutely. to gain a, his actual goals Mhm I mean absolutely there's a point I mean think about the fact that if he if his goal was just to bring a specimen back 
why would it matter to keep John Hurt alive? Like, there's a whole scene where they're trying to figure out how to get the face hugger off of John Hurt's face, right? And as the science officer, he could have just fucking said, uh, there's no way to save him. We're just going to need to take the thing off. And then you could, you could put the xenomorph, the little, like, face hugger in a box and save it. But the fact that he's like, no, we have to keep it alive in a way that it is more than just get a specimen back. Because I, I don't know if they wanted to start a breeding program on Earth, but they probably at least wanted the like cellular information, which you could get even if the thing was dead. Yes. I really, I really like Ash. He's, <laughs> I mean, obviously. Uh... You like him. You like him for being a complex character. Yes. There Not is. Not like, I like Ash. No, I wouldn't want to spend too much time with Ash. But he, he's the super interesting facet of this movie. Go ahead. Yes. So I have another question. And this is, uh, uh, actually, no, before we get to my next question, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the scene. And that is the chestburster scene. Yes. Because this is, the, like, this is possibly the most famous scene in the entire film. Yes, uh, I, I've heard a lot about this scene in between many rewatches. Yeah, this scene in Alien is to the get away from her, you bitch scene from Aliens. Yes. Which is like just like the most remembered scene. I'm going to tell you a fact that's not a new fact. This is one of those like worst kept secret things. <laughs> that scene is one of those scenes in film history where only the person who it was happening to knew what was going to happen. Yes. So J- John Hurt knew, of course, because he is the prosthetic on. But no one else in the cast knew what the chestburster scene entailed. And so all of those reactions are very, very correct. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think, I think there are discussions to be had on whether or not that is a breach of trust with your actors or a good artistic technique. There are arguments to be made for both sides. But in this case, regardless of whether it is a quote-unquote ethical way to film a movie, it's a very effective scene. <laughs> yes, it's, it is really interesting to see all of the like expressions on everyone's faces and register those as the actor's emotions in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, I'm sure there is an element of becoming the face here because these people are on set. They are playing characters. They know this, and they're trying to embody these characters and think like them. And that's mm-hmm. that's an aspect of that. It absolutely is. It's just it's it's such an effective scene because up until then there has been no real gore in the film. And there, like, there has been body horror, but like very, very slight body horror. Like, the face hugger's upsetting because there's a, there's a, there's an invasion aspect of that in a very visceral and sexual way. Hi, Geiger. Yeah, uh, this this movie is highly, highly about sexual violence. Like, all it is also, a, yes, a hundred percent. That is a thematic statement, and that is what you get. When you hire H.R. Giger, the uh, the Swiss uh, the Swiss artist who just really draws some of the most 
aggressively sexual biomechanical things to design your aliens. Yes. You know, like, people have made mention to the fact that the xenomorph's head is very phallic, and yes, it is. <laughs> and It is very phallic, and as demonstrated every time he opens his mouth, he also gives head in most of his scenes. Yes. Uh, but, oh, anyway. <laughs> no, that wasn't, uh, I lost my train of thought. That wasn't actually, I wasn't terribly disgusted by that. Ah, darn. I'm sorry. <laughs> The xenomorph can reproduce, whether or not that is ascribed to a form of human gender is beyond that. But <laughs> it is the, the xenomorph is generally characterized as a queen. Right. Which is interesting, too, because then you just have Ripley versus a xenomorph queen in all of these films. And like, damn, sometimes when a thing is, is so lauded, there is a way where you can sort of forget that beyond all of the praise, there are just straight up good performances and things. <laughs> and Sigourney Weaver's performance in this film is just like at a 10 at all times. It is so good. She is excellent. She starts off as very chill, like, you know, because the movie is like the movie starts off very low key. And over the course of the film, you just see her get fed up with everything and she just keeps stepping up and i love it it's just like by the end oh god the scene in the escape pod where she's just like saying you're my lucky star to herself while like slowly filling the pod with gas yeah she's, she's just like she, she's fucking like st steel nerves <laughs> but she... still but still she is vulnerable i love this she is a vulnerable character who just like has to swallow that fear and just do the thing because it's the only possible action. She has one of my favorite character arcs uh, that that is not uncommon, but I love it every time I see it, where it's not a person who is, like, experienced and hard and they're rough and tumble and they already know what to do at all times. They can mm -hmm. give a punch and they can take a punch. It's the person who is constantly pushed to their limit, and they just barely overcome it, and then they are pushed to a new limit, and each time you see them struggling, but growing, and fighting, and clawing their way to survival. Yeah, and I mean, like, she... And, and I love the fact that they do not... They do not make her into this, like, perfect badass woman character just out the gate. She is badass because she's self-sufficient and she is going to survive. And hey, this movie loves survivors. It does. Like, like not just like it loves survivors, like it only loves the person that survives, but like it is a movie about survival. It, um, it loves the reality TV show Survivor. It, it, ab it yeah, the, the xenomorph is played by Jeff Probst. Uh, <laughs> but like, it, it is a movie that is about the human drive to not die. Yes. And I, you could make that as something that every horror movie is about, but this is very specifically about fighting back in a way that some other horror movies don't always get to. Yes. And it, it really just depends on like what kind of monster you're dealing with. <laughs> because if you strip alien from all of its sci-fi trappings, it is effectively a slasher film. 
Yes, very much so, actually, now that I think on it. Like, because it's just like you have a villain, or you have, a, you have an antagonist that is picking off your characters one by one. Which is a very slasher film thing to do. Yes. But, where this differs from a lot of other slasher films, which, you know, all of those have final girls, and Sigourney Weaver here is a final girl. The thing is, I don't know. There is, I think because the, the xenomorph is framed as also a survivor, quote-unquote, and that the real final battle is a survivor that survives because it can pick everything else off. Yes. Versus a survivor that refuses to be picked off. Yes. That's interesting. The unstoppable force versus the immovable object. Yes. So actually, here, I have another question for you. Yes. And this is going to zoom out a little bit, because I want to talk about the movie Alien. I want to talk about the movie Alien. I have heard arguments made before that Alien and other pre-digital horror films we're able to sort of lean into the slightly more low fidelity aspect of movies and especially VHS and use it to their advantage. Do you think we lose certain things from movies like this in like a digital upgrade? That is an interesting question because I don't, I think that in this movie, clearly it's all practical effects. Like there's Mm -hmm. an, alien costume these are physical sets there is not green screen or cgi yes but it's all incredibly well done oh amazing this is this movie has some of the best set dressing i've seen ever even just like the normal nostromo hallways yes like the the final scene with the alien where it sort of blends into the background and looks like it's part of the bulkhead. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you see it, you can't stop seeing it. But until it moves, you don't know it's there. Absolutely. Speaks, speaks wonders to both the quality of that alien costume and the set design itself. It's very true. Oh, I actually, I have a, I have a note here. This is a spaceship with mood lighting. There's only like three or four scenes that are well lit on this very futuristic sci-fi spaceship. Well, so here, I was thinking about this, right? Mm-hmm. I bet in this, in, in the world of Alien, just like, let's just take Alien as its own thing. Yes. The world of Alien itself. I bet there are super high-end luxury spaceships that are new and have lots of really good lighting. I think the Nostromo is a ship that has been being used for like, decades i absolutely agree i don't think this ship was i don't think this ship was originally designed to care about its uh passengers and i also don't think that it has been maintained i think we see a lot of instances of things looking just barely not broken down that's probably Mm -hmm. evidence of how much the corporation actually cares about the people working on this ship if the ship was new and working at 100% capacity, I don't think they would have been stuck on the planet for 25 hours. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> I think that landing wasn't that hard, but because they have such an old ship and they are so not used to having to do stuff like this, that it just kind of fucked up because of negligence. Yeah, absolutely. Corporate negligence, not negligence on our, like, cruise part. They can only make a 
a half-working ship work so much. Yeah. <laughs> but to your earlier question about whether or not I think something is lost in the... In the, in the move from, like, sort of uh, celluloid to digital? Yeah, to, to that transition. I don't know that I'd phrase it as something being lost. But I do think I do think there's artistic merit in continuing to view this through the non-HD version. Because this movie does look good in HD, and you still get a lot out of the HD version, maybe, arguably, even some things that you wouldn't in the other. And I don't think that if they had made this movie today, they would have intentionally released a less than HD quality film because that's what the vision always was. Sure. I agree with you. If I may, uh, I'm going to read a quote from the musician Brian Eno. Okay. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what I, what I think about this. Whatever you now find weird, ugly, uncomfortable, and nasty about a new medium will surely become its signature. CD distortion, the jitteriness of digital video, the crap sound of 8-bit, all of these will be cherished and emulated as soon as they can be avoided. <laughs> it's the sound of failure. So much modern art is the sound of things going out of control, of a medium pushing to its limits and breaking apart. The distorted guitar sound is the sound of something too loud for the medium supposed to carry it. The blues singer with the cracked voice is the sound of an emotional cry too powerful for the throat that releases it. The excitement of grainy film, of bleached out black and white, is the excitement of witnessing events too momentous for the medium assigned to record them. I really like that. I, I think I agree with all of that. So, in terms of Alien, it is not that I think that... It's not that I'm saying that, like, HD versions are losing something fundamental. What I think is the difference here, and the argument I've heard made uh, very specifically in an H-Bomber Guy video about VHS, is that... The fact that celluloid and VHS were not as good at filming dark meant that shadows that weren't actually designed to be scary just managed to tickle little bits of your brain a bit because we couldn't get super high-res images of, like, an entire hallway or, you know, a slightly darker room. It will feel different when it is filmed on a medium that cannot pick up the low lights as well. Yes. And so, like, by making an HD version of Alien, do we lose some of these sort of not intended but helpful bits to, like, heighten the fear? Or do we gain something else in return? And that's sort of, like, what I was thinking about while watching this. Because it is, like, it is a movie that is dark, but not in the way that modern movies think of dark. Yes. Like, visually dark. <laughs> Where modern movies just, like, try to fucking black out the screen, and I hate it. Yeah, I don't love that. Well, um, do you want to talk about uh, Geiger a little more? I mean, I, I, did, I did some research. There's not much to say. He is... <laughs> you Go look at his art if you have a chance. It's a very aggressively sexual. But hey, I do have a question for you kind of related to this. Yes. If you both consented and you knew you weren't going to kill each other, would you fuck a xenomorph? <laughs> I just... 
I just... I don't think... If it's blood is acid, what does it com it's come like? Is the real question. <laughs> that is a very solid question. Uh, that's where I'm coming from. That's not where they're coming from, though. <laughs> also, where do they come from? That's... Like, I, don't, I don't. Question. I don't know the physiology of of a xenomorph enough to know. Like, do they need to? <sighs> okay, so here's definitely a thing. Yes, they definitely drool enough that that can be used as lube. It uh, absolutely. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Uh, well, like, look, the blood's acid. The spit's not acid. No, they have acid spit, don't they? Damn it. Yeah, I. I don't think you want to get it on you, but. Maybe they can, like, turn that off? Because, like, look, I... Uh, when I say that I'm a noted monster fucker, there's very few monsters I don't find at least... Some... Monster fucker of the year. Right. And there's, there's very few monsters I don't find in some way attractive. The xenomorph I find attractive. Uh, but I think it's, like, it's an aesthetic attraction for me. Like, Yes, that's exactly what I was about to say. I, I cannot say I have not seen and enjoyed... <laughs> porn that has had xenomorphs in it uh-huh but like i think it is more aesthetic than just like sexual viability and you know that's me quoting my friend there who literally when i asked like why do you think we're all like into shit like hot suits of armor and whatnot and he was like 90s cartoons just made us more attracted to aesthetics <laughs> and i was like shit well you're right uh <laughs> So, you know, I, 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 there is something intensely lusty about the Xenomorph, even though it is trying to kill everyone. And especially in later films where you get to actually see the Xenomorph a lot more and it like stalks around, there mm -hmm. is, like, I get it. I get it, friends. <laughs> and it can get it. Uh, it certainly can. It can uh, get whatever it wants yeah perhaps me as a human is not like the right body with which to interact with it that's that's valid i mean so here's here's the turnaround yes if i were ash if i had ash's body i i mean i'll try anything once that's fair like if i'm synthetic especially if like ash's consciousness is uploaded somewhere or something right yeah, if you have, like, a failsafe in case it just goes horribly wrong, I'll at least see what it's all about. Yeah, like, you know. And, and, and then, hey, if it's good, then we can do, like, a three-way with the Predator. <laughs> Pretty sure that's a scene in the movie, Alien vs. Predator. Yeah, Alien loves Predator. Alien X Predator. Side note, this has nothing to do with this movie, but do you know what I found out? was made pretty recently in Japan. What? No. Tell me. <laughs> a, a horror versus movie, kind of like Freddy versus Jason or Alien versus Predator. Yes. With the girl from The Ring and the girl from The Grudge. Oh my god. I Can we can we put that on the list? Please? Yes. Yes, it's I I I have heard it's terrible and that's fine, but I love the fact that it's just like what if these two ghost girls fought? <laughs> <laughs> I I am fascinated, like super fascinated with the the not insignificant trend of let's have two horror movie villains fight each other. Mhm. Mm 
there is such a it's a very specific subset right right it's i guess like i guess like part of that also extends into comics being really into two heroes fighting like batman versus superman well it's it's it is the it's the like eternal fan hunger for crossover events yeah, it, it's it's full fan service, and I love it, it. Even when they don't make sense, fans love a crossover, and I am not immune to that. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, like, look, there, there is, like, a deep human need to answer the question, who would win in a fight? And I don't know why. Yes. But it's funny, because there are definitely some... There are certain movies we've talked about, and certain movies and, 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 and media and whatnot on the list that we will talk about, yeah. Where the movie doesn't actually put onto its villain characters all that much sexuality, but because of some other aspect, uh, queer people at large or even just me have attached to it in, in a sort of yeah. like lusty way. But like, there is a direct, I mean, like, and you know, of course, because they have uh, Giger doing the art direction. And as you said, the movie gets into certain topics of like, sexual violence uh but like i the the aliens are very specifically framed to be subversions of human sexuality yes like the face hugger implants its eggs in you via face fucking and i have also seen porn of that i have no doubt (laughs) uh and, like, it, it is interesting, right? Because uh, there are so many other characters that queer people have have sort of fetishized that are not really, the, that have been more of a stretch. And this just fucking isn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I feel like in, in terms of ones we've talked about, maybe, uh, Maybe Godzilla is, at least in terms of practicality, the only one that I find less viable. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you don't think about also being the size of Godzilla. Yes. Which, like, that's the first part. You get to be a giant, and then you get to have sex with Godzilla when you both consent. Yes, of course. Yeah, like uh. <laughs> in the movie Alien, no consent is given. That isn't very that isn't very attractive. Uh, but again, if I met a xenomorph and we could both consent, I'd probably do it. Yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you have anything else? Not on that, but just do you have any questions or whatnot? <laughs> I I'm looking over my notes I have here. Uh, the vents have anus hatches. Oh yeah, man. Those xenomorph fucking... gives good head. Yep. Xenomorph waits till she's undressed. Oh, this is a fun one. I had an idea, a self-destruct button that detonates three seconds early because at that point it doesn't really matter and maybe you want to take people by surprise. (laughs) You know, the funny thing about that whole self-destruct sequence, it's exactly 10 minutes long. Oh, yeah. I I clocked that as well. I literally clocked that as well. (laughs) And, like, I love... I love when when media can find a way to actually make something real time. Yes. And, and, you know, of course, like there have been shows like 24 and whatnot, but there is something different about, well, we talked about, uh, 
one of our very first episodes, Van Helsing, where the like 10 seconds to midnight is a 15 minute long battle. Right. Uh, And there is something compelling about actually making the time the correct amount of time because it puts tension on the audience as well. I I was reminded of, of all things, there is a Doctor Mm -hmm. Who episode called 42. And it is exactly 42 minutes long. And the entire plot takes place in 42 minutes. And it's all about, like, trying to get a ship away from a star that's going to explode. Oh, yes, I remember this one. This was a Martha episode. It was, and I just... I, I love Martha. Martha was done dirty by the writers. Uh, I, I... We can get into the Martha discussion later. We do not have time yes. for me to talk about my feelings about Martha in Doctor Who. But regardless, that episode is really interesting because it was constrained by this idea of we're going to write an episode that cannot do cutaways in the same way that we usually do. We cannot edit to a new scene that is a day later. Right. And that puts some really interesting constraints and it puts a lot of tension on the story. And like, you know, that first time that Ripley thinks she's going to need more time, she runs back to try to stop it. And let's be honest, she did stop it in time. Mother just didn't want to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do love that the self-destruct for the ship is very, very difficult to do on accident. Yes. Like, as can... it should be. <laughs> You look at, um, I think Star Trek Voyager is maybe one of the most infamous examples of it, where, like, Captain Janeway could accidentally self-destruct the ship by mumbling in her sleep if she just had a bad dream. (laughs) Did she do that? No, but she literally just says, like, her name and set the self-destruct, and I think that's it. That's, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I've always questioned the idea that, like, a self-destruct button would be a button. In yes. The, and, like, in certain genres, that's kind of fun, right? In a, in a campy superhero film, great. That makes sense that a self-destruct button will just be one button, right? Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, a self-destruct sequence should take time, and you should have to think about it. Because yes. it should not be the decision you just make rashly. You'd be like, okay... It's lost. We have to do this. Dad says... You sank my battleship! And history is made. Well, in real life, there are sort of self-destruct buttons. They're for ships to make sure that they don't fall into enemy hands. Mm-hmm. And for... Um, well, I can't, I can't speak too much to that because... Well, I don't have the security clearance. <laughs> but... My understanding is that... Right, you're already on a couple lists, so... I do have a security clearance, which is wild. But yeah, that always requires, like, two senior people who have codes that only they know and keys that only they are allowed to have. Mm-hmm. And, like... They both have to that's... enter the, the key... The, yeah, they both have to put the keys into the different sort of like starters at the same time turn them and then usually there's a secondary button that has to be hit afterwards yes Uh, self-destruct is literally the last option and the nuclear option yes and i like things that reflect that that is not to be taken lightly first off i love the how to do self-destruct sequence is like on a panel Um, (laughs) because look 
if you're going to have to do that, usually it's under duress and you don't have to go finding a fucking manual. That is true. But I also love that half of it's in French. (laughs) Well. And we have not once established that anyone knows French. That's all. It's not like it's a bad thing. It's just like, I love that that detail was just like, sure. This is a great film for like, world building through set design. Yes. Oh, absolutely. The the set of the Nostromo is incredibly evocative for a lot of what it's trying to do. Like, again, the fact that there are only like two or three rooms that are lit well, and they are the few places that the people running the ship are going to have to live. Yes. Oh, right. I have one other thing I want to bring up. Go for it. And this is not a knock against the film. This is just one of those things that I see a lot in horror movies in general. Yeah. It baffles me when it seems to live in a world where no one knows what a fucking horror movie is. (laughs) And look, I get it. I'm not saying that under certain circumstances, people don't make bad decisions just because, like, that's how the human brain works. I'm sorry. The moment you step into that ship and you have that giant H.R. Giger fucking pilot room. Yes. Take some pictures, go back to the ship, and figure out what you want to do. Don't keep exploring. You have you have hit on something that no one's ever seen before. Like, yeah, this is um specifically outside your contract that has been discussed so much early on. Yes, and like I get that there are people that are curious, you know, despite their own well being. Mm. But hey, John Hurt, you saw, you went into a room and there were a lot of eggs. Leave, <laughs> leave the room. There's there's a moment where they they do the very like smart thing of like we're all going to go in pairs, and then they get distracted by the cat and immediately split up. Jonesy. Immediately, I'm I'm very glad that the cat survives. I'm pretty sure the cat was working with the xenomorph. That there, look there is a there's a wonderful film to be made that's just the xenomorph and the cat hanging out. Yeah, I think the cat is like luring people to the xenomorph and slowing them down for the xenomorph (laughs) i I think they have like an agreement they have an understanding the xenomorph sees the cat and goes like ah another perfect hunting machine yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) good cat Mm. though oh i love it i was i was genuinely upset i know the cat's not actually in the crate yeah but at the end ridley puts the cat in a crate and then she, like, runs to the escape pod with the crate, like, turned sideways and jostling. And then she drops it and she, like, kicks it into the escape pod. And I'm like, Ridley, that cat is dead now. What are you doing? I don't, I don't think the cat's dead. No, the cat, the cat is fine, but only because it wasn't actually in the crate. Yes. Uh... And I do love that before before she has to, like, smoke out the alien in the escape pod, we make sure there's a scene where, like, she puts the cat into one of the sleep pods. Yes! <laughs> like, it'll be okay, kitty. <laughs> and also, I love to know, I love knowing that those pods work on animals. I mean, I, I guess the principle is just the same, right? I guess, whatever the principle is. You just is. slowed the metabolism down. I also, speaking of those sleep pods, uh, well... While it while the movie was opening, all I could think of was, man, we could rescore this entire film with like post rock songs. I want to watch that. 
<laughs> I was specifically thinking of like the whole wake up sequence set to explosions in the sky's first breath after coma because it feels right. Uh, <laughs> There's, I I love the idea of just movies completely shot the same, same script, all the same scenes, but cut and edited and score differently to create like entirely different works of art. Oh yeah, well even just changing out the soundtrack. There have been quite a few movies that have like gotten new soundtracks over the years. Uh, the biggest one I can think of is in the 80s, the movie Metropolis, like the silent film Metropolis, yeah. was rescored by Giorgio Moroder, the guy who invented disco. <laughs> he didn't make a disco track, but he made like an electronic uh, soundtrack for it that just changes some of the tone of the film but but it's not really like recut or anything interesting it's interesting that's all it's like how can different music evoke slightly different outcomes to the same story it's the cool it's the kuleshov effect in action i watched a um and i don't know if this was one of a series i secretly hope it was but a trailer for mrs doubtfire but as a horror film so as there's not like a series per se, but that is a that is a that is a whole subset of videos on YouTube. People recutting trailers to be a different like genre. Yes, I love those. Same. It's it's a lot of fun to watch. Like, oh god, I think someone tried to make like a sort of '80s like sex farce out of a slasher film. <laughs> and mostly, that sounds right. Mostly, it's just like adding upbeat music in the background and like oversaturating and like changing like the light filter on any scene with the slasher character. Right. Right. I mean, it's fun. It's, it's, it's recontextualizing media. And since everything is a remix, that's just, you know, how it's making art, art out of art. Exactly. Art eats art. That is the whole point. Huh? Well, I think that's, that's all I've got. That's um, all I've got as well. Else? It's been it's been a bit, but this is a really good discussion. Yeah, I I thought this was a uh, fairly solid. It was. So, hey, Hayden, Hayden, <laughs> what's on the gay agenda for next week? Oh no. Well, next week is going to be the Monday immediately after Thanksgiving. Um, and so I want to watch what has been a favorite uh, Thanksgiving film of mine, which is Adam's Family Values. Heck yes. I love it. I, I'm so excited. Not just for like the fact that it's the Adams Family, a group of people that, man, we're going to have so much to talk about. I, uh, we could... But, do the other Adams Family movie, well, movies now as well. Oh, we will, we will, we will get through other Adams Families at time. <laughs> uh, I think we can space that out. I'm also just excited because I, this is the one that also has Joan Cusack in it, and I love Joan Cusack beyond all reason. <laughs> uh, oh, right, she plays, she's the the one. She's who's, the villain. Yes. Mm. Um, I I love her dearly, and so. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for finally tackling the, you know, the real power couple when it comes to uh -huh. when it comes to mall goths. Well, 
If you love Joan Cusack beyond all reason and uh, want to talk to someone about it. Right. You can talk to us. We are on both Twitter and Mastodon. On Twitter, we are IODM Podcast. And on Mastodon, we are I Only Date Monsters at monsterpit.net. Or if you want to reach out to us over email, maybe you have something that exceeds a character limit and you want to uh, send that to us, you can reach us at iodmpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to talk to me directly, you can find me on Twitter or Mastodon. I am at Lunastopheles, either on Twitter or at snoutsonline. And if you want to reach out to me directly, you can uh, talk to Mother. Mother will know what to do. Mother? Damn near killed her. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we, <laughs> we don't say this every time, but if you could leave us a rating or a view, or if you really like us, uh, maybe tell some, some friends about it. Yeah, please. Unfortunately and unfortunately, one of the only real ways podcasts get traction if they're not part of a major network is word of mouth and ratings and we would appreciate you helping us out here uh we want we want to keep making this yes i we'll probably we would keep making it regardless but it'd be nice to be able to make this with a bit more support <laughs> across the board oh uh, yeah we we greatly appreciate any any support any Mm -hmm. Any conversations you want to start with us? Yeah, I think we're, we, I think we have said this. We are rambling, though. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, until next week, uh, the same sign-off we always have. Every week. All the time. I, I mean, like... Never changes. Ash could still consent with only just being ahead. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, you're not wrong. Give me just a moment to marinate in my shame. <laughs>